What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Blog Talk Radio. Appleseed Project, which is a project from the Revolutionary War Veterans Association dedicated to rifle marksmanship and American heritage. We're glad everybody tuned in this evening. Uh, We're going to be doing something a little bit different tonight. Uh, We're going to discuss the events of April 19, 1775. Some of the some of the things that that happened and uh, and brought about the events of that date, and then what happened on that date. So what we're going to do, uh, I'm going to I'm basically going to do it uh, uh, kind of like I do at the at the shoot. We'll tell it as the three three strikes of the match story. Uh, we'll giving a little bit of information beforehand. And then uh, at the end of each one, at the end of each uh, story, what we'll do is uh, have folks 
uh, you can call in, and at the end of each story, we'll have uh, uh, a few minutes of discussion. I don't know how 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 far we'll get. Uh, I'm going to try and and keep the information at a minimum, uh, just a uh, uh, kind of a brief uh, coverage of it. Because what I'd like to do is uh, is try and get everything in uh, in one uh, block here. And I know that uh, when I'm doing the three strikes at an event, uh, it can run long, 40, 45 minutes, uh, you know, per a strike if if I let it. So I'm going to try and keep it uh, keep it down to uh, uh, like 15 to 20 minutes uh, per a section, and then uh, and then have uh, allow for a little bit of time before a discussion afterwards for folks if you want to call in. Uh, we'll get you on the line, and uh, uh, I have the uh, chat program open, but uh, you know it's been working great for the last uh, last two weeks. But uh, for some reason, it's not opening tonight for me. Uh, but uh, as soon as it opens, then uh, we can take any questions too from the chat to uh, answer those. <clears throat> so let me get started. Uh, Right off the bat, now you know that the the events of April 19, 1775, of course, didn't come uh, out of the blue. I mean, there was uh, there was a lot that went on before that. Uh, there was a lot of things that uh, had happened in the Americas before that. First of all, let's preface this with the fact that the Colonials, the provincials living here, in many cases, were third and fourth generation. They'd been here for over a hundred years, many of them, governing themselves uh, as colonies of the British Empire. Now, once you have someone who's governing themselves, governing themselves, uh, once they've begun governing themselves, it's... Uh, it's very hard, if not impossible, to reverse that. Uh, once men have understood freedom and uh, and lived in freedom, you can't go back and take that away. <clears throat> you can try, but uh, you'll end up basically the way that the British did here in the colonies. <clears throat> All right, well, we're only going to go back uh, one year. Uh, We'll go back to uh, September of 1774, because that is when that is when the first uh, of the major events that that brought about the uh, the events of April 1775 began. Now there were many things beforehand. There were uh, uh, there was the the taxes and the uh, the revocation of rights, the intolerable acts, uh, on and on. And I encourage you uh, to read uh, more about this. And basically, what I'm going to do tonight is just trying to uh, whet your appetite with this. Uh, the Appleseed project relies heavily on uh, a book by David Hackett Fisher. 
called Paul Revere's Rod because it's one of the most in-depth studies of the uh, the events on April 19th that there is. Uh, one of the most in-depth, uh, comprehensive studies of it. Uh, you can find it online. You can get uh, you can read half of the book at uh, Amazon. I'll let you read half the book uh, so that I presume so that you'll you'll buy it after that. <clears throat> okay. On September first, seventeen seventy-four, uh, General Gage had planned to. Uh, his plan was to remove the powder uh, from the colonies, and the reason being that uh, everyone had firearms. Everyone had, had muskets uh, and firearms and stuff. But in order for them to use those firearms, they had to have powder. Powder wasn't something that you could make up in your kitchen. Powder had to be, uh, uh, for the most part, it was made abroad and then shipped into the colonies. And Gage's plan was that uh, if you could get rid of the powder, well then you've made the uh, you've made the firearms unusable. The powder was kept uh, in uh, powder houses, you know, large powder houses, uh, kind of like brick barns and stuff that were uh, uh, placed outside of the city limits, usually uh, away from any other uh, uh, human habitation, because they had a uh, propensity for catching fire and exploding. Uh, they even uh, they could even be set off by lightning. And uh, Benjamin Franklin uh, did a brisk business in selling uh, lightning rods to the uh, uh, the different provinces where they could put lightning rods on top of their powder houses. So Gage has a plan to go and take the powder from the provincial powder house uh, six miles north of Boston. And a lot of the towns had kept their ammunition, their powder and stuff there, uh, as well as the whole province of Massachusetts. <clears throat> now, during the summer of 1774, previous to this, a lot of the towns, uh, fearing that something might come up, had begun to uh, quietly withdraw their supplies. As I said, the powder was kept uh, was kept together. You know, different towns would put their stockpiles in. It would be listed, you know, 10 barrels from Sudbury, uh, uh, you know, 15 barrels from Danvers, etc. would be stored and kept in one place. And then if it was needed, they would go and draw it as it was needed. But there wasn't a great need for it. They weren't uh, in any war. Uh, the last war had been the French and Indian 20 years before. But they still stored the powder that they needed in these provincial houses, and they would just go and get it when they needed. But during the summer, the towns had been uh, coming in and, you know, quietly taking their powder out. Now, most of the towns had taken it all, and that only left the provincial reserve, which the loyalists like to call the king's powder. Uh, but most of the folks in Massachusetts believed that, you know, that was their powder. It was their powder from their province. They bought it. Uh, they had stored it there. It was their powder. <clears throat> Gage decided that uh, he would send out uh, a contingent of soldiers to take the powder. So on September 1st, 1774, 
uh, a group of soldiers, approximately 260 hand-picked men, uh, rowed down the uh, river in a flotilla of 13 longboats, and they uh, uh, they came ashore uh, near Temple Farm. And they marched to the powder house, which was about a mile away from there. And uh, the sheriff, who was there, they told him to give him the keys, and of course he did. I mean, uh, he was asked by the, uh, you know, the legal military folks there to give him the keys to the powder house, and he did. Now, they'd gotten there before, right before light. And so they were standing there at the, the powder house, uh, waiting to go in. They had the door unlocked, they were waiting to go in and unload it, but... Uh, it just wasn't a great idea to take lanterns or torches, etc., into a powder house. So they waited until it got light enough for them to uh, to load the the powder. Once they got light, they went in. They took uh, all of the 250 uh, half barrels of powder and brought it back to the boats, where it was delivered back to Boston. Now Gage was happy about this. He was very he was very pleased with this. Everything had gone exactly according to plan. However, the colonists were absolutely livid. As I said before, this was their powder. No one had a right to this. This was their powder for their livelihood. They had bought it. They were absolutely enraged, and they were completely caught completely by surprise. Now, throughout the course of the day, reports were flying all across uh, the province. Uh, they had been told that the, the province had been robbed of its powder, uh, that the regulars were marching and that war had already begun. Six people there had been killed, and uh, the uh, the uh, British ships were bar- bombarding Boston, which, of course, none of this was true, but that's just the way that rumors run. And many people uh, were absolutely in a panic, and that caused that day from then on to be known as the... Uh, the powder alarm, because uh, it was the first event of its kind, but alarm bells were rung across the, all across the towns. The alarm fires that uh, you know had, they had been traditionally lit to warn people uh, of Indians or uh, of, the, of their French soldiers, etc., uh, were lit. Runners were sent out. Uh, uh, the the whole countryside was up in arms. <clears throat> and then uh, men were on the march. They thought that the troops were still there. They were on the march. Uh, one of the folks who had ridden along the road uh, recorded his what he saw, and he said that uh, he'd never seen such a scene before. All along the road, armed men were rushing forward, some on foot, some on horseback, at every house, women and children were making cartridges, running bullets, making wallets of food, baking biscuits, crying and bemoaning at the same time, animating their husbands and sons to fight for their liberties, though not knowing whether they should ever see them again. Now, this was an, a tremendously upsetting, a tremendously alarming event uh, for the New Englanders. Uh, one of the uh, one of the folks, Ezra Stiles, who was a congregational clergyman, uh, 
with a passion for statistics, it says, estimated that perhaps more than a third of the effective men in all of New England took up arms and were in an actual march for Boston. Uh, another reported that 20,000 men uh, marched from the Connecticut Valley alone in one body, armed and equipped, and were halfway to Boston before they were called back. As I said, this was, uh, this was an unbelievable uh, insult <coughs> to the New Englanders. Uh, it, they took it as, uh, as an act of war at the time. Now, Gage... Once he learned of what uh, he at first he was pleased because of uh, of how smoothly the operation went. The operation itself was a great success, and as far as the men got there very easily, very quickly, and were able to get the powder, get it loaded up, and back to Boston. However, the aftermath was a disaster. Once Gage found out how uh, upset the New Englanders were, and how they were arming themselves and preparing for war. Uh, he ordered that the town of Boston be closed and fortified. Heavy cannon were emplaced on Roxbury Neck in fear that the country people might storm the town. The inhabitants of Boston were ordered to surrender their weapons. Stocks of powder and arms in the possession of merchants were forcibly purchased by the Crown. So everybody's getting down into a lockdown-type situation and... Uh, now, things eventually smoothed out a bit. You know, after a few weeks, uh, folks realized that uh, that uh, the regulars had not been uh, shooting people and burning towns. They hadn't been uh, there hasn't been a naval bombardment of uh, Boston. But the one thing that came of this was that the people of New England vowed. They would never again be taken by surprise. Now, this gave rise to the uh, all the diff- all the different spy and uh, uh, alarm lists, uh, the mechanics, etc. Uh, Paul Revere went instantly to work in shaping many of these networks, these uh, warning networks. Uh, and uh, it went at full speed. <clears throat> He'd organized a lot of folks, uh, the mechanics, etc. Uh, the uh, committees of safety and correspondence were organized. Uh, they they figured they would never get uh, taken by surprise again. They're going to watch every movement that the British regulars made. If they ever tried this again. Uh, there would be fast horses sent out uh, to all points in order to uh, warn and alarm the uh, provincials. So, after about uh, two months, about a month and a half, the British, I guess, had uh, decided that, uh, you know, they... They would. They'd gotten their nerve back up, and they decided to to try this again. So, in early in December, they organized another uh, group to be sent out. 
Now, this time it was going to be uh, uh, sent out to Fort William, Fort William, to get all the uh, powder and munitions there. Revere heard about this, and in the in the middle of a snowstorm, a deep uh, snow and ice storm, <clears throat> he rode 60 miles to give the warning. He gave the warning there to uh, the folks in Portsmouth, and uh, this was a three-day trip in snow and ice, snow and ice by horseback, 60 miles. And I'm telling you, that's rough. There were no snow plows back then. It was just snow and ice, uh, no Gore-Tex, uh, no uh, uh, rainproof garments. Three days in the snow and ice. All right, early on the morning of December 14th, uh, they rallied the militia in Portsmouth. Portsmouth. They had 400 men uh, mustered in the town. They uh, they got a small fleet of boats and rowed over to the fort. Uh, some of the men marched overland. Now, when the uh, the garrison at Fort William saw them, and and by garrison, uh, I'm greatly overstating it. There were six guys at the garrison. They were invalids, you know, guys who had been uh, wounded or were sick and recovering. Six guys there. <clears throat> and uh, nonetheless, they decided to uh, resist. Even though it was uh, 400 to 6, they said, uh, we're going to do our duty and defend this fort. They hoisted the king's colors. <laughs> the six of them manned the ramparts, and they fired... Uh, a couple of cannons, and uh, they were quickly overpowered by the sheer weight of numbers of the 400 New Englanders. Now, the the New Hampshiremen gave three cheers when they had uh, taken the the fort. The captain of the fort, Captain Cochran, surrendered his sword, but he was allowed to keep it. Uh, they just told him what they were going to do. However... To Captain Cochran's horror, they hauled down the king's colors. Now, when they did that, Captain Cochran went ahead and drew the sword that had just been given to him and uh, was beaten down and wounded. And uh, they emptied out the fort. Now this, this was actually the first, the first uh, battle of the American Revolution. This was actually four months before Lexington conquered. It was the first time that the colonists had faced the uh, British regulars uh, in a showdown. Now, the next day, uh, uh, probably about a thousand additional men came when they finished cleaning out the fort. Uh, getting a huge supply of muskets and 16 cannon. <clears throat> and uh, the British were absolutely, uh, they were appalled at what had happened. So, fast forward to February. Now, here in February, 
They're going to try it again. This time, Gage's uh, spies had heard that there was a, a large supply of uh, powder munitions that was arriving in Salem. And uh, they decided that that was a, a close enough town. Uh, they would try this again. So on February uh, 26th, 1775, a group of troops of the 64th foot sailed north across uh, Massachusetts Bay on a course of Marblehead. They reached their destination about 9 o'clock in the morning on the 27th. They dropped anchor by a secluded beach in Homan's Cove on Marblehead Neck. Now, Colonel Leslie, who was in charge of the, the troops there, he kept his men below decks uh, after they had arrived. It was on a Sunday, and they knew that the folks, the uh, New Englanders, would be observing the Sabbath. So they would be uh, in their churches. <clears throat> so he kept his men below deck until uh, all the folks were in church. Now, once they were, he unloaded the men, and uh, they took off and uh, started heading into town. And uh, when they got five miles away, they figured now, you know, there's nothing they can, there's nothing that the the folks of Salem can do now. And uh, they brought out the drums and fife and started uh, uh, making music on their way to Salem. Now, when the guys were being offloaded, they'd been seen by some of the... Uh, some of the men of Marblehead, who had run on to Salem and alerted some of the folks. One of the folks who was alerted was uh, the Whig leader, Major John Pedrick, who gathered up his gear, got on his horse, and headed to Salem. Now, he could only get there by the road that the regulars were actually on. So he rode slowly past the regulars. Uh, he was smiling, politely saluted uh, Colonel Leslie in charge, and he knew, he and uh, Colonel Leslie knew each other. And Leslie returned the salute and told his regiment to file to the right and left and give Major Pedrick the pass. And they did. Pedrick rode through, and as soon as he was clear of them, uh, a little bit out of sight, he gave his horse the spurs and uh, rode on to Salem, where, where he learned the, uh, alerted the folks in Salem. Now, as they were coming into town, uh, right before they got into town, uh, some of the townspeople ran out to the bridge between Salem and Marblehead and started tearing up some of the planking there uh, so they couldn't march across it. You know, they just tore the, the planks on the bridge off and to delay the folks. And as they were doing this, the folks in Salem were dragging off uh, the cannon and stuff that were at the forge and, uh, uh, you know, getting all the stuff that they had there in town hidden away very quickly. Uh, so it took the the regulars a few minutes. They repaired the bridge, made their way onto Salem. Uh, <clears throat> once they got into the square, they noticed that uh, the folks of Salem, and now there were, there were loyalists, also called Tories, you know, living in almost every town. Uh, 
You had the the provincials, the colonists, the patriots, uh, and loyalists living in the in all the towns together. Uh, usually, the makeup of a town was probably about equal in thirds. You had one third that were loyalists, one third that uh, that rode the fence, and another third that were uh, patriots. Well, some of the patriots were seen whispering in the colonel's ear. So the colonel pointed his troops at the where the foundry, the forge was, and started making a beeline for the forge. That's where the cannons had, were being uh, worked on. Now, between the town square in Salem and the forge was a drawbridge. Uh, was a drawbridge over a a section of the bay called the North River. Now, just as the soldiers were coming up to it, the folks in Salem raised the drawbridge. Now, the Colonel Leslie, of course, was furious because all roads in the colonies were considered to be the king's highways. However, the folks in Salem considered it to be Salem streets. Now, the British regulars could not get across the drawbridge unless we were let down. And the folks on the other side of the drawbridge were just sitting there yelling at them, calling them names. Leslie said, That if they didn't set the draw, if they didn't let the drawbridge down, his orders meant to fire on them. Now, the captain of the militia was there, and the militia was was forming up. As all this is going on, this wasn't an instant uh, run into the center of town and run straight to the forge. This was the town being alerted, while the uh, troops were still five miles away. Each town had militia. The Salem militia began gathering. There was another uh, uh, bit of time where they had to repair the bridge. As they're doing this, the warning has already been sent out. The minute the warning came to Salem, it ricocheted off and started heading out to, to all parts to the east, north, and south. To the west, north, and south. So the east, of course, was the ocean, but to the west, north, and south. Those guys from the neighboring towns are starting to arrive. The militia is forming up. <clears throat> so this is all taking a bit of time. It's not happening uh, immediately. Now, the militia captain who was there, his name was John Felt. Now, he looked at Leslie, and he said, you'd better be damned than fire. You have no right to fire without further orders, and if you fire, you'll all be dead men. As they're trying to figure out what to do, men, more men, are coming in all the time. This wasn't a case of uh, of the warnings or an alarm going out and folks uh, saying, hmm, what should we do? Should we do something or, uh, I don't know, what should we do? It was a case of whenever the riders came by through the next town, and these towns are only, in some cases, only a mile apart, mile and a half to the next small town. When the rider came through and yelled that the regulars are in Salem, those men immediately jumped up, grabbed their muskets, their balls, and their powder, and took off for Salem. So the men are arriving immediately. As a matter of fact, 
by the time this thing finally uh, is getting to a fever pitch, it's almost 5 o'clock by that time, which is six hours, six to seven hours later. By that time, men were pouring into the town of Salem uh, all the way from as far as Amesbury, which is 25 miles to the north. So in the five to six hours, the five to seven hours from the alarm, it had time to dash all the way 25 miles north. And then for those men to get under arms and dash 25 miles to the south, 50 miles total. So they've got an impasse at the drawbridge. Now, things are starting to get really ugly, and uh, as they are getting ugly, uh, Thomas Bernard, who's a minister uh, for the folks there in Salem, came up and was talking to Leslie, and he said, listen, don't fire on these folks. And uh, Leslie asked him who he was, and he said, I'm Thomas Bernard, a minister of the gospel, and my mission is peace. So what he did is he worked out a compromise. Now, Leslie obviously knew he wasn't going to get across unless they let the drawbridge down. Now, there had been some boats handy standing by. They figured they would get the boats and uh, get across in the boats. However, as soon as they started looking at the boats, the, uh, uh, the folks in Salem there looked at them, too. And they said, you know what? Uh, those are our boats. And they went over and they knocked holes in the bottom of the boat so that the regulars couldn't use them. So Leslie knew he was at an impasse. Uh, there was nothing he could do. He could either start to fire on the folks there at Salem, uh, try and get them to uh, let the drawbridge down, or he could listen to what Bernard had to say. Bernard's comp- compromise was this. We'll let the bridge down as long as you, on your word of honor as a British officer, Tell us that you will go only to the ironworks there, to the foundry. And if you find nothing there, then you will turn and leave and go back. And Leslie had no other choice. It was getting dark. As I said, the, his uh, a couple of hundred men there were very quickly being trumped by the huge numbers of men coming in from uh, the surrounding areas. And the men of Marblehead... Uh, these were rough and tough men, the lobstermen, the fishermen up there. Uh, throughout the American Revolution, whenever there was a, a rough go of it to be had, uh, Washington would call on the men of Marblehead. They were rough men. They were afraid of nothing on this earth. So Leslie decided he would accept the compromise. The drawbridge was lowered. They went over to the ironworks, and there was nothing there, of course, because it had already been moved. They found there was nothing there. They turned around, and they marched back. Now, these three events were very important because what they did is they were training the New Englanders. They were training them and letting them uh, perfect their alarm systems, uh, 
how they how they would react to uh, certain things, and each time that they succeeded and that they turned back the regulars, it emboldened them. So these whole, all of the powder alarms, all of the, the forays that the British made continued to embolden the New Englanders and to train them on how to uh, react when this was happening. Okay, that gives us uh, that gives us the events leading up to the leading up to April nineteenth, seventeen seventy five. All right, we're going to take a call real quick. Uh, area code five eight zero. You on the air? Area code five eight zero two seven eight. You there, Scott? That's me. Who's this? Oh, gee, I'm just getting out of the hospital. I couldn't get a computer work, so I'm just using my cell phone tonight. Hey, well, how are you doing? Oh, wore out, but other than that, okay. How did it go? Uh, four hour surgery took eight hours to do, and I stayed a total of about ten days in the hospital. Well, why didn't you let me know? Well, I told everybody, but, you know, everybody's busy. No big deal. <laughs> well, I knew that you were I knew that you were hoping that you were going to be able to get surgery, but I didn't know that you'd actually, that everything had been okayed and that uh, it was going down. It was one of those deals where I actually called him up, and he called my uh, insurance company, and he says, I can do it, like, the next day. And I was like, okay, fine, I'm on my way. Hmm. And what did they say? How'd it go? Oh, uh, they took all the old hardware out and installed brand new hardware and went in three more vertebrae higher and all the way down to the tailbone. So I've got over 50-some stitches and all kinds of rods and pins and screws going all the way up to the ribcage. Well, I'll, I'll put you back on the prayer board, and uh, I will certainly you'll certainly be in our prayers. Well, I'll be calling the line by April. I'm not too worried about that. Come April, we'll be doing our thing again. Well, uh, well, that's good to hear. Mm-hmm. I uh, I wanted to try and get a quick uh, uh, a quick version of the history in here and. Uh, I didn't know if you were calling in, if you were just calling in to listen, yeah. or if you were, uh, if you wanted to say something. So, no, I was just listening. Well, listen, God bless you, brother. Yes, sir. Uh, and, uh, and I'll talk to you again uh, in the next couple of days. All right, King. All right. Bye. <clears throat> okay, so we certainly hope that... Uh, that OG, old grunt, uh, that his surgery went well. Old grunt, of course, is one of our instructors and a good friend of mine. And uh, he is a uh, he's a United States veteran. Uh, as he said, they were replacing some hardware put in by uh, 
by the Americans. Uh, I haven't asked him lately if he was uh, if he's still carrying around uh, hardware that was put in by the uh, Iraqis. I don't know if he is or not, but uh, hopefully that's all out. But uh, that was the unauthorized uh, hardware that was put into him. <clears throat> we certainly hope that uh, he has a speedy recovery. So we're brought up to the the date of April 18th, 1775. The word is already out that another raid is going to take place. This one is going to be for Concord. Uh, General Gage's spies have told him that Concord, which is also a seat of the uh, Congress, that uh, Concord has huge stores of munitions and stockpiles. And they did. They did up until the 18th. Prior to that, they'd gotten a warning that Concord was a possible uh, location for a raid. Uh, and a week before, uh, actually two weeks before, they started removing all of the munitions and war materials. <clears throat> so on the 18th, General Gage sends out his men again to uh, seize the stores of materials in Concord, they're awakened uh, on the evening of the 18th, uh, grab their gear, dash out to the uh, uh, to the ships, and they're rowed across the back bay to Lechmere Point. Now, Revere had already been warned of this, and uh, he had sent out riders out across Charleston Neck that were sent out. Uh, and, of course, everyone knows of the uh, one of my land, two of by sea. That had been, uh, that signal had been given. That wasn't for Paul Revere, of course. Uh, Paul Revere knew how they were going. That signal was in case he couldn't make it. There were already riders stationed uh, across the bay watching for the signal. If he couldn't make it, they were going to be sent out. And riders were sent out. The minute they saw the the signal from the uh, the spire of the North Church, the uh, the two the two lanterns, riders were sent out. They took off immediately. Revere was rowed across, uh, where he was received. Uh, he grabbed his horse, and he took off. So we have the two groups in motion now. One group uh, out in a warnings, and as Revere's folks went out. This wasn't a, a a solitary ride by Paul Revere. He wasn't. Uh, it's not the the mythical folkloric story of Paul Revere on his solitary dash through New England, uh, yelling, "The British are coming! The British are coming!" This was a planned. This had already been planned out. <clears throat> that when the folks were awakened, when the major alarm was given that each town would send out additional riders to their neighboring towns. Those folks would send out riders and on and on, like a huge uh, like a huge version of the old telephone tree. You know, when something happens, I'm going to call X, Y, and Z. They're each going to call three people. So my phone call to three gets nine. Those nine, my phone call to nine uh, gets another 27. Those 27, et cetera, et cetera, 
and it continues to multiply until all of New England is awakened and alarmed. Revere is riding out, giving his alarm. Uh, at the same time, riders had been sent out uh, across uh, Boston, out uh, Boston Neck. Uh, uh, Dawes had been sent out. Several other riders were all out. As soon as Revere hit the beach, other riders were sent out. The regulars, they are wading through the marshes in Lechmere until they get to the highway, and then they take off. They're marching at a rapid pace. Uh, I believe it is uh, 16 minutes per mile is their pace, which is a a fairly rapid pace. You know, I'm sure if any of you folks who uh, who are used to doing 12-minute uh, miles on your runs know that 16-minute uh, miles are not far behind you. Okay, so these folks, the uh, regulars, have set off. Revere has set off. Uh, they're making a race of it. Uh, the alarm is being sent out. Of course, Revere is alarming all the folks uh, on the way through the different towns. They're sending out their riders. The regulars are marching, continuously marching, one mile every 16 minutes. Now, General Gage did pre-plan for this. He sent uh, out cavalry uh, on the roads the evening before. Their job was to intercept any messengers, anyone they caught on the road after dark, they were to detain. And they did. They detained uh, dozens and dozens of folks. Very few were actually uh, alarm riders. Most of them were just uh, people going to town, people uh, uh, up early uh, driving uh, milk into Boston were arrested. Uh, People coming back from feeding their cattle were arrested. Uh, young men on the way home from visiting their girlfriends were arrested and detained. <clears throat> All right, the <clears throat> the regulars, the or actually the alarm riders. Revere gets to uh, set the alarm out all the way to Lexington. And the main thing he wanted to do when he got to Lexington was a war was alarm Hancock and Adams who were there. They were staying at the Clark House. He wanted to let them know uh, that the regulars were out because uh, their names came up uh, several times in conversations. Uh, Where have you seen uh, Hancock or Adams? Uh, Do you know where the Clark Tavern is? There was no Clark Tavern, but there was the Clark House uh, where they were staying. So they were afraid that uh, Adams Hancock could be arrested and they knew for a fact that they were going uh, to head on to Concord to uh, get the stores there. Well, when he got to Lexington, uh, he alarmed the, uh, the local militia. Uh, they were uh, mustered, and uh, Captain Parker, who was the head of the militia there in Concord, he mustered his men together, and the first thing he did was he sent out riders, and the reason he did that, he wanted to find out uh, where they were, how far away, uh, if there was indeed actually uh, folks coming in. So he sent out riders. <clears throat> and the riders uh, took off. Now, one of them came back after a couple of hours, and uh, he had actually taken the road that the regulars were not using. So, of course, he didn't see them or hear of them. Well, he came back and he said, there's not there. 
There's nobody coming. It's a false alarm. So Barker said, all right. He goes, well, uh, you guys don't have to stand here in formation anymore, but don't go home until the other rider gets back because uh, when you just want to make sure that there's not uh, that the regulars aren't out. So the guys were uh, disbanded and just asked to stay within range of the mustard drum. <clears throat> so they, some of them went to the tavern, some of them went to local homes nearby, some just went down and sat down, etc. And they waited. Now, as they as they waited, several things were happening. As I said, the alarm was being continued on and on. Uh, even though Revere was there at uh, Lexington, the alarms were being carried on uh, at the same time by the countless other riders who were out across the uh, going out across the countryside. Now, Revere had actually been captured and detained uh, a bit earlier when he had headed on to Concord to deliver the message there. He had been detained by the British. Uh, They'd actually caught him on the highway, one of the patrols that uh, Gage had sent out, the mounted patrols. Now, whenever, whenever he was detained, he told the... Uh, the patrol, that there was uh, 500 men in Lexington waiting for them, and they better not go there. Now, uh, this was twisted around back in the 60s and 70s by some of the, uh, the folks in saying that Paul Revere ratted everybody out. Well, that wasn't the case at all. He was uh, sticking as close to the truth as possible, but still trying to scare the regulars away from Lexington, because that's where Hancock and Adams still were. He wanted to scare them away from Lexington. Uh, there were still hours to go for them if they bypassed Lexington to get to Concord. But he did not want the patrols to dash into Lexington and grab Hancock and Adams. Now, not long after he told them that there were 500 men in Lexington, I don't think that the patrol, patrol believed him, not long after he told them that is when Parker disbanded the, uh, uh, the militia until the... Uh, until the other rider came back. Now, a large group of them went over to the tavern. They were going to go into the tavern, and the, the, the tradition of not having a loaded firearm where you're drinking uh, is not a new one. They had it then. And there was no good way to uh, unload a musket other than firing it. So before the men went in, they all fired their muskets to clear them. Now, the patrol that had captured Revere heard this from the direction of Lexington. And uh, they looked at Revere, and he said, Hey, told you, didn't I? They decided they better get back and warn uh, the the approaching force from Boston. So they cut everybody's reins, took uh, Revere's saddle, put everybody afoot, cut their saddles and their reins so they couldn't put them back on the horses if they caught them, and uh, and took off to warn uh, Colonel Smith about the the folks in Lexington. So they rode as fast and hard as they could. And they got to the, uh, they got to Colonel Smith and told him what was going on. Now he was afraid that 
that at the speed that they were marching, that they wouldn't make it to Concord fast enough. And he wanted to make it, he wanted to get there faster to make sure that they secured the two bridges, the North Bridge and the South Bridge in Concord. <clears throat> so he, took, he told his executive officer, Major Pitcairn, who was the uh, commander of the, the Royal Marines, he told Pitcairn to break off a part of the force and have them speed march into Concord to secure the two bridges. So Major Pitcairn tasked this out to a Lieutenant Jesse Adair, uh, he was a hard-charging Irishman. He asked Adair, he detached uh, five companies, and told him to hot-foot it into Concord and secure the North and South Bridges. And uh, while Adair wasn't the sharpest uh, pencil in the box, I believe there's one story about him uh, when the uh, when the regulars were approaching uh, uh, the gates outside of Boston that uh, he was spreading caltrops uh, from the gates toward the enemy so that uh, when he got through spreading the caltrops, of course, and the enemy's approaching, I'm sure he turned around and said, oh, great. Now he had to he had to make his way back through the caltrops. Uh, now just the type of man he was. He detaches the uh, five companies, and they start off uh, at an even faster pace. These were the light infantry companies, uh, and they started off at a faster pace. Now, as they're as they're beginning to take off, some of the folks who had ridden, uh, some of the folks on the road, and I believe at this time also, uh, the other rider, the rider that had uh, been dispatched along with the uh, uh, from by Colonel, I mean uh, Captain Parker, he had managed to make it back into Lexington, and uh, and he said, "Look, they are there. They are coming. As a matter of fact, they're right behind me." <clears throat> so even though they had had hours and hours where they could have gotten ready, uh, they ended up with only a few minutes. The uh, approaching regulars were less than a half mile from the town. Now, also at this time, <clears throat> and this is a very important uh, note, some riders, uh, purportedly from Lexington, had ridden out to the column and were yelling at them that they will they should not come into the town. And supposedly, one of the Riders pointed a pistol at the advancing regulars and fired it. One of the guys in the very front said he thought that he saw uh, one of the riders fire at them. Well, nobody was hurt, of course, but here's what happened. At that point, Colonel Smith halted the column, and he told all of the soldiers to load. Now, up to that point, they hadn't been because obviously you, uh, you don't want a bunch of guys marching along with uh, with loaded muskets that can go off just from a little spark. But now they are. Now they're all loaded. And this is going to be important in just a few minutes. 
So they are marching again at a quick pace. Parker, of course, has gotten the, the drummer to resound the muster. And the men are trying to, they're, they're trying to muster, remuster as fast as they can. Now, some of the guys uh, had already decided it was probably a false alarm and had gone home. Some of the other folks had gone to the tavern and had a few drinks. Uh, and they're trying to muster the men as quickly as possible. And they're slowly mustering their own Lexington grain. Now, as they're doing this, the soldiers are coming into sight. Supposedly, one of the men is said to have said, uh, "How can we? Uh, how can we stay? How we're too few? How can we stay?" To which. Captain Parker is said to have said, turned to him and said, I will shoot the first man that runs. And this is understandable because I'll tell you, I've seen this before, and panic uh, is a contagious disease. One man gets scared and they all get scared. It only takes one or two scared men to take off running to uh, infect a whole group of men. <clears throat> so the militia continued to muster there. Now, also, Parker is said to have ordered the men to do not fire unless fired upon. Do not molest these British, uh, these British regulars unless they were molested. The, the folks in Lexington were not there to start a war. They were there to protest for their rights. Now, I'm telling you, they were in their town. They were in the middle of their town, in their own green, on their own commons ground, standing there uh, in formation with their muskets. And what laws were they breaking? None. They had a perfect right to be there. They had a perfect right to protest. As Lieutenant Jesse Adair came up to the town of Lexington. There were two roads. One road went on to the north to uh, their objective, to Concord. Another road there at the fork turned to the right, and that was the uh, Bedford Road. That road takes would have taken him straight into the middle of Lexington Green. They had a decision to make. Do I continue on, or do I turn these group, this group of men onto this road and into Lexington. Now, this is all happening at first light. Matter of fact, it was, it was just the first streaks of light in the morning. It wasn't bright daylight where things, uh, where things seem rapidly apparent as to what they are and what's happening. This was the, the dark, dark gray of morning where things can be very confusing. Uh, you could see a large group of, of, of people gathered in Lexington. Now, as I said, there were only a few actual militiamen, but there was, uh, there was probably uh, 100 uh, to maybe 200 folks who had gathered, but they were just uh, townspeople, women, uh, children, men, but not part of the militia. Uh, so Adair had a choice to make. 
Now, if he went straight on, he would be leaving this armed body on his uh, right flank. Not only that, but the regulars had had it. They had had it up to their necks with these, uh, with the country people, as they called them. They were sick to death of them. They were angry. Uh, they'd been marching all night. And, of course, if it weren't for the uh, country people, they wouldn't have had to be marching all night. They could have been back in their barracks, uh, nice and comfy. They were tired of the insults, of the continued prodding uh, from, the, uh, from these country people. They were holding grudges. Supposedly, Lieutenant Adair was heard to have said, Damn them, we will have them. And he turned the, uh, the uh, companies that he was speed marching with onto the Bedford Road and straight into, into Lexington. Pitcairn was riding up at the same time, right about that time. Uh, Adair, of course, didn't have anybody to ask. He was, uh, he was in charge of that first group. Uh, he made the decision on where to go. But by the time he was turning him off, Pitcairn made his way up there, and he stopped the rest of the, uh, uh, the, rest of the brigade and con- continued them on straight on the road and halted them on the road to Concord. <clears throat> Once he'd done that, then he turned and he started riding back to the Bedford Road to catch up to uh, Lieutenant Adair. Now, as Adair is marching his men toward Lexington, they're getting more and more excited. And uh, they're marching on, they're marching on. Uh, two of the companies stopped right outside by the meeting house, but two more of the forward companies carried on and began actually at a run toward the green, toward the confrontation with the militia there. They ran, they hit the, the green, and they began to form up into battle formations. Now, as they did this, they began uh, shouting their battle cry of huzzah, uh, which is a very loud, throated uh, cry, and it's designed to, uh, for two things. One, to, to help uh, give courage to them and two, to intimidate the opposing force. Uh, I don't know if any of you guys have ever uh, done any riot control, but, you know, it's the same kind of thing that uh, <clears throat> that we would do there. You know, you would go into, you would have a, uh, uh, a cadence, or you'd be, uh, let's see, I think that we just yelled something like, hup, or something like that, and... Uh, and uh, we were in a uh, you know drag uh, a drag step. That's where you're moving just uh, your left foot forward and you're dragging your right with your bayonet held out uh, as you're advancing on the riders. And uh, supposedly the the cry, the huzzas of the men were so loud that uh, it was deafening. Now, you have two groups of men lined up facing each other. For the most part, 
None of them have been in combat. There's a scattered few that are veterans. Uh, but for the most part, they're green men. Now, anytime you have men who are green, who haven't experienced combat before, facing each other with loaded firearms, that's a recipe for disaster. If they were all veterans, that'd be a completely different story because veterans, uh, they know what's going on. They don't shoot until they're given the command. Uh, they don't. Uh, uh, they don't get flustered because they've been there before. They've done it before. But these men hadn't, even though they were the most feared soldiers on the face of the earth. The British forces were. They had not been in combat. <clears throat> so the the regulars are facing the militia. They're shouting their huzzahs as loud as they can. About this time, <clears throat> Pitcairn, he sees what's going on, and he knows, he knows, too, that this is a recipe for disaster. And he's riding up as fast as he can, along with several of the other mounted folks. who are there. Everyone is yelling at this point. Everyone is yelling. The regulars are yelling. The, uh, the British officers are yelling. Pitcairn comes riding up to try and defuse the situation. He starts yelling at Parker's men. He's yelling, lay down your arms and disperse, you villains, you rebels. Lay down your arms, damn you. Why won't you lay down your arms? As he's yelling this, somewhere there's a gunshot. And there are many theories about who fired the first shot. The one thing we do know is that the first shot, through the testimony of the regulars who were there on the front lines, and of the provincials, the men who the militia had mustered with Parker, is that the regulars did not fire the first shot, the ones who were online, and the militiamen there did not fire the first shot. Somewhere, somebody else, fired the first shot. Now, from the provincial's point of view, from Colonel Parker, or Captain Parker's men, several of them say they saw a mounted British officer fire a pistol, and that several pistols were fired at them. From the regular's point of view, it was said that several shots were fired from behind a brick wall uh, on their left flank, and then from the corner of a building on their right flank. Whatever the case, and that very well could have been both, each one testifying to what they could see, may very well both have been the case. But we do know who fired the first shots among the ranks. As soon as those first few shots were fired, Major Pitcairn is said to have told his men, men, do not fire. Do not fire. Surround them. Encircle them. Now, one of the reasons that, uh, that we don't bandy about the F word at an Appleseed event is for this very reason. 
because of any 100 words you can say uh, in a crowded, uh, noisy situation, the word you're best going to hear is fire. That's the word that's going to come above all others. So if you have a, a huge group of men yelling and huzzahing, and you have a man who's saying, fire, then that's the word that they hear. That's why we don't say it unless that's what we want you to do uh, on the line. Well, supposedly that's what the men, that's what the regulars heard. There were a few scattered shots. They sounded sounded like a popping, which uh, escalated to a ragged volley, and then it sounded like the ripping of a bed sheet. Now, Parker, whenever Pitt Kern had told him to lay down their arms and disperse, he turned and told his men to disperse. He didn't say lay down your arms, but he told his men to disperse. And they were in the process of doing that when the volley came. Two men were shot down right there on the line. The rest of the folks were actually shot down while trying to disperse or uh, while trying to uh, escape, in quotation marks. They were shot afterwards. And only one person was wounded among the British regulars, the Supposedly one man was shot in the uh, the lower leg or the thigh. Uh, it's possible that Pitcairn uh, may have been, uh, had the end of a finger wounded. Uh, a horse was shot. We had eight killed at Lexington. Now let me tell you real quick that whenever the, when the folks mustered at Lexington, it's not like at an Appleseed event. You don't have a group of men gathered together who don't know each other. You know, at an Appleseed event, there will be uh, uh, three dozen, four dozen men, and only a few will know each other. The instructors will usually know each other. At Lexington, they all knew each other. They were all they were all family. They were all related. There were eight father and son teams that mustered that morning. Of those eight, four were separated by death. Of those eight, those eight father and son pairs, four of them had either the father or son killed. Everybody who was shot that day was related to somebody else in the town. Everybody in the town lost a family member. It was all family that gathered together on Lexington Green. It wasn't a group of unknowns, uh, a group of strangers. It was a huge family. It was like having a family reunion and having the men of the family reunion uh, standing in formation in front of the family reunion and having... uh, uh, a couple of dozen of those guys shot. 
Everybody lost a family member. The British regulars were shooting in every direction. Uh, as soon as they had, as soon as they had fired the several volleys, and then they began going forward and bayoneting anyone in their path. <coughs> Smith was riding as fast as he could to get to the the green. As soon as he got there, he the officers were trying to get the men under control, but the men weren't listening. Uh, they are, I guess, in a in a bloodlust, and they couldn't be controlled. Smith, as soon as he rode up, called out for a drummer. He got the drummer. He told him to muster the men. Now, if you're yelling, if you are yelling for folks to gather up, uh, and people were shooting, uh, it's a good chance that a lot of the folks aren't going to hear you because a lot of your times your voice is going to be blocked out by gunshots. But a drum has a continually uh, underlying sound. It means that it uh, doesn't matter how many gunshots you fire, you're going to end up hearing the beat of that drum at some point uh, underneath the gunfire, and they did. And they'd been trained to respond to the drums. The drums were signaled used not just for getting in formation, they were used for every uh, every signal on the battlefield. And the men were trained to respond to that, and they did. So the men... <clears throat> upon hearing the drums begin to gather back into formation now supposedly they were uh, they were very surly about it I suppose that they wanted to uh, continue on with their uh, with their butchery but they followed the orders of the drums and got back into formation Smith marches men back out onto the highway, onto the road to Concord, got them back in formation, had them fire a victory volley uh, to help uh, get their spirits back up, I guess because they were so upset that they couldn't continue the butchery. It also allowed them to uh, empty all their muskets so that... uh, once again, they didn't have uh, any safety issues on the road. They gave three cheers, fired a victory volley. <clears throat> Smith gathered his officers together and told them finally what their mission was. Now, the officers were horrified. When they found out they were going to conquer, which means they were going to march additional uh, seven miles into enemy territory, They were horrified. They said, we can't do this, not after what has just happened here. They knew uh, from the year past, they knew that the minute something happened and the alarms were out, then men would be gathering in large masses. They had already heard about uh, how quickly the colonials had mustered during the previous uh, uh, powder alarms during the previous powder raids. They knew that the country was going to be up in arms. And uh, they advised Colonel Smith not to go on with this. Of course, Colonel Smith told them simply, I have my orders. And he did. And he took his men 
on the road and started marching them to Concord. Now that's the end of what we consider the first strike. Uh, I still don't have the chat open. And I don't see any uh, anyone else that just called in to uh, discuss this. So we're going to take a very short break and uh, continue on. strike of the match after Colonel Smith rallied his men back in formation on the road to Concord they began to head to Concord at a fast pace Concord was well aware of the the force heading toward them had already mustered had already tried to uh, to figure out what they would do they had sent a couple of riders to see what was going on. Those riders were actually there at Lexington uh, when the events occurred there. One of the riders had ridden up to uh, Captain Parker and spoke with him briefly just as the regulars were arriving there. Now, as soon as they fired that first volley, the riders took off back to Concord. When they arrived there, they uh, spoke with uh, Colonel Barrett, and Major Buttrick about what they had seen. And Barrett asked him if the regulars had been firing ball, meaning if they were firing actually firing live ammunition. And the riders said, I don't know, but I think it's probable. 
Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. In many cases, the regulars would fire uh, blanks to kind of give a uh, a warning. And uh, the difference between firing a blank and firing live ammunition at the folks in your own nation is a uh, it's a big difference. And the reports were that they had actually, they had more than probably been, been actually firing ball at the residence of uh, Lexington, at the militia there. Well, they'd had a meeting to try and determine what to do. Now, <clears throat> Concord had the, uh, in Lexington, they had just the, uh, they had just the militia. They didn't have a Minuteman company. They had just the militia, which held uh, everyone in it, and uh, it was just called a training band. Now, in Concord, they actually had a Minuteman uh, company. They had the uh, militia and then the folks on the alarm list. And as they were deciding what to do or what they should do, they had three, three different opinions on it. The militia, I mean the Minutemen, who were the younger men, the, uh, I kind of like to think about them as the, the young men who were are, who are always ready, uh, ready to go out and do something and uh, have never had a really good uh, butt whipping. The Minutemen decided that they wanted to go out and meet them outside of the town, on the road, before they even got there and stop them from entering the town. The folks in the militia, which was the middle-aged men, wanted to defend the town. They wanted to fight there in the town if the regulars came to the town and defend the town. They didn't want to go out and look for a battle, but if if the battle came to conquer, they wanted to fight it. Now, the folks on the alarm list, who were the older gentlemen, said, this is not, this won't do. Because what will happen is they'll come into the town, we'll have a battle in the town, the town will get burned, the folks in town will get shot, women and children included, and they'll burn the town. They'll set the town to the torch. And listen, this isn't, uh, this isn't the year 2000 where you have hundreds of uh, dull, stucky homes waiting to be filled. This is 1775, where if you want a house, you better start on it a year before you need it. You better start on it before winter gets there. It takes a long time. Each board has to be hand-sawed. A home is a major investment. There's no home insurance. There are no roving crews of minimum wage builders. better think long and hard before your town gets burned. They wanted to move out of the town to their training area on uh, uh, on a hill approximately a mile from the town. And there, men were starting to arrive already in Concord. Men were arriving by the minute. They said, let's pull out of town, let's wait until we get... Uh, 
some more of the men here before we do anything. So this was discussed back and forth and back and forth, and finally it was decided that they would do all three. <laughs> this isn't like a modern army where you have a general who says, do this, and then everybody has to do it. This was just a town where your uncle was uh, uh, a private and uh, where another guy was a, a sergeant. And uh, nobody could really tell somebody else what to do. They could just advise them. And the Minutemen decided, we're going to go out, we're going to meet them on the road, and we're going to show them that they can't get them to come into the town. So they took off. They headed out. Uh, about a mile and a half out of town, they saw the regulars approaching. And by this time, the sun's coming up. And listen, whenever you see uh, muskets now, even in the movies, they make them old and rusty. Because that's the way you're so used to seeing them now, that if you saw a shiny musket in the movie, you'd think it was a fake. Because it's shiny. Muskets are supposed to be old and rusty. Well, muskets weren't old and rusty. Muskets were brand new, bright, shiny. You could see your face in them. Four foot of barrel and another two foot of shiny bayonet. Shiny triangular bayonet. Two foot of steel spike on the end of that four foot barrel. You have 800 men marching in a beautiful formation. 800 men with 800 long, 7-foot spears, shiny spears. I'm sure it looked like uh, an advancing steel porcupine. So the Minutemen <clears throat> set up into formation. Now, when they did, when the regulars became to appro started uh, approaching them, there was no, uh, they didn't stop. They didn't stop to decide what to do, or they didn't, uh, they didn't have to try and figure out what to do, etc. These were professional soldiers. As the columns were moving along, they were given orders under march to move into battle formation. So you see this huge porcupine caterpillar alligator moving towards you, and it begins to open up its jaws. It begins to open up its jaw so it can devour you in one bite. It was fierce. And these guys could see that. They could see the these professional soldiers of war marching straight at them, men who had been trained for war, who that's all they did is they lived for war, to fight and to kill. And this huge... Alligators opening up its jaws to devour them while it's still moving. And they began to rethink what they were doing. These guys, the Minutemen, they were brave, were not soldiers. They were farmers and hat makers and chair makers and uh, flower grinders. They weren't professional soldiers. Think about it yourself. Think about it if you were... 16 years old, 17 years old, and you're out there on the road with uh, uh, a bunch of your buddies, and you saw 800 men coming. And let me tell you, when you see 800 men in that frame of mind, 
I can guarantee you it looks like uh, 2,000, 3,000 men. When they saw this uh, professional machine of war heading toward them, they rethought what they were doing, and they decided to pull back into the town. Now, they didn't run. They didn't go run screaming like scared little kids. They formed back up uh, into their unit, and they headed back into uh, Concord while their own fifes and drums were playing. So you had kind of uh, almost like a, they described it almost as a parade. You had the Minutemen heading back into town, and then not far behind them, perhaps a quarter mile, was the uh, was Smith's Brigade. So they're coming, they come back into Concord, and once again, the discussion is of what shall we do? And I'm sure that at this point, they can see the regulars. They can see what they're facing. There's no way they're going to stop these guys. I'm telling you, there's no way. There's point of pride. There's point of honor. And then there's death, and your town burned down, and your wives and children killed. The decision is made to pull out of town uh, and uh, head for Punctacid Hill, which was... uh, Uh, their rally point. So they did. They pulled out of town, and they rallied on Punctacid Hill. Whenever the regulars arrived, there were no men, uh, no men left in town. And Smith began searching the town. Uh, And you'll see it described, they describe it as they began to enter the houses without warrant, without warrant. And you wonder why that's put into the Constitution. That's why. They began searching, but they found very little because Concord had been warned. They had already been warned of what was coming. They had already removed everything. They had taken it out to all the different towns and spread it out. Now, the forward units immediately secured the North Bridge and the South Bridge, and then uh, several companies were sent on uh, to Colonel Barrett's farm to search there because the word had been that uh, uh, that some of the munitions had been moved there. The spies that uh, Gage had in Concord had an accurate uh, house-by-house description of uh, where the munitions were kept, how many, etc. But they had been moved. Now, the soldiers went to... Uh, uh, the Barrett farm began searching there, but it was planting time of the year, and Barrett's sons had plowed furrows. They laid the muskets in the furrows and then covered them back up so it looked uh, like a normal field. They were searching the town at the same time, but as I said, they found very little. They found some gun carriages. Uh, they found stocks of wooden spoons and uh, uh, and then trenchers. Uh, which uh, can be either plates or actually entrenching tools, wooden entrenching tools. They found some musket balls, and they threw them into the uh, the mill pond there. Uh, they piled all the stuff up they found. They chopped down the liberty pole, threw it on, on fire. Now, as he did this, the uh, the town hall actually caught fire, too. And the women 
who were there asked the soldiers to please help them put it out. So they formed up a bucket brigade and began to put out the fire. It was in that that gray time between war and peace. There was not really a war on, and they weren't supposed to be doing any damage. And so they put the fire out. <clears throat> One of the uh, tavern keepers had locked his doors and wouldn't open it. The door was busted down. Pitcairn rushed in and clapped a pistol to the guy's head and told him, I'll be damned, you will tell me where the cannon are, or I'll blow your head off. And uh, that jogged the innkeeper's memory very quickly. He said, you know, you're right. There are three cannon out here in the uh, courtyard. Let me show you where they are. They went out and dug those up, and uh, they busted the trunnions off them. That is the the metal pieces that stick out on each side of the cannons. That uh, Once those are busted off, there's no good way of mounting the cannon on anything uh, where it won't go flying when you shoot. So it, you can't really carry a cannon off if there's no... Uh, they're too heavy to carry, so they try to damage them as best they could. Busted the trunnions off, spiked them. <clears throat> but they found very little else. Now, as I said, people were arriving, additional units were arriving uh, every minute. The numbers of men in Concord were continuing to grow. <clears throat> as, the, uh, as they were burning the gun carriages and wooden spoons and the Liberty Pole, the men of Punk, or on Punkcastle Hill was about a mile away. Now, they couldn't see into the town. Uh, there was a, you know, there's a few trees, and then you have the town itself. So you can't really see what's going on in the middle of the town, but you could see when smoke starts rising out of the town. As I said before, the whole point of moving out of the town was so that they wouldn't put the town to the torch. One of the men... The, the man who was uh, in charge of the Minutemen, uh, Lieutenant Hosmer, comes to Colonel Barrett and asks him, will you let them burn the town? And, of course, in a professional army, you wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't try to embarrass your commander, but this was just uh, townspeople, the militia. And Barrett had a duty to the town. He couldn't let them burn the town. So they decided to move forward. And as they moved forward, they moved to their uh, to their training ground, which was around 300 yards or so from the North Bridge. The uh, One of the companies that was sent to secure the North Bridge was there. But as they saw the, the men moving down from, the, from Punktasset in a military fashion, they began to pull back across uh, to the bridge. Now, it's also noted by quite a few of the the regulars who were there that they were very surprised that the the men were moving together under arms in a military fashion. They never uh, they said they never thought that that they would see that. Anytime they saw any of these guys uh, doing their monthly uh, militia training. They would just laugh at them because they thought they were a joke. Because they were the real soldiers. These guys were just uh, goofballs out there parading around. Uh, they didn't know what they were doing. And in a way, that's true. 
I mean, they didn't know the manual of arms. They weren't that great at marching. But I tell you what, they used their they used their firearms for actually shooting stuff. They didn't use it to uh, uh, to intimidate someone so that they could ban at them. You can't intimidate a deer into the cooking pot. You can't intimidate uh, a wolf away from the herd. You actually have to shoot it, which means you have to have some marksmanship abilities. And these guys had that. One of them in there, Captain Isaac Davis, was a commander of the Acton Militia. He actually had built a firing range. Get this. He built a firing range behind his house. It was... Uh, I'm sure one of the first uh, uh, colonial DARs and uh, had his men practicing there once a week. He'd also uh, had a uh, blacksmith shop, and he had made bayonets for all of his men. He'd made bayonets for his men. He had them practicing uh, their marksmanship skills once a week. Then he also made cartridge cases for them which means they didn't have to uh, try and pour loose powder into their uh, musket barrel, uh, cut a patch and put it in, and put the, get a ball out of a bag and put it in. All they had to do was tear the end off a cartridge, uh, pour a little bit in the frizzing in the pan, pour the rest down the barrel, put the paper in, put the ball in, and they're ready to go. As they were moving to the their training field, as I said, that was about 300 yards from the bridge. Some of the regulars started tearing up the bridge. Now, Major Buttrick saw this, and he got highly uh, heated because that was his bridge. He told him to stop it. Stop tearing that up. That's our bridge. And it was. It was his bridge in his town. His house was right behind him. He was standing on his property telling the guys, stop Tearing up my property. Stop destroying my property. That's our bridge. He turned to his men, he said, instead of giving them a command, as I said before, the the militias weren't really in the habit of giving commands. They were they consulted instead. He turned to his men and he said, If any of you were of the same mind as me, we would stop those men from tearing up our bridge. So in essence he's saying Hey, listen, uh, if you guys think like I do, then uh, we'd stop them. And uh, the men basically said, yeah, you're right. We think like you. Let's go. Colonel Barrett asked, who would lead them? Who would go forward? At this point, Isaac Davis pulls out his sword, he raises it up, and he says, I have not a man who is afraid to go. I have not a man who is afraid to go. He was chosen to lead the men forward. His men formed up, and they started moving uh, in a column down there toward the North Bridge. <clears throat> now, as they're moving forward, the troops, the uh, British company on the colonial side, 
be the hasty retreat back across. At the same time, the troops there were ordered into a street fighting formation. Now, a street fighting formation, if you've been to the North Bridge in Concord, you'll see the reason why. It's because they were in a depressed lane. They had high, uh, as high rocky uh, walls on each side. So they, they couldn't spread out. And they figured, I guess, that they figured the guys were going to come marching across the bridge. And a street fighting formation is designed to produce as much firepower as possible in a confined space. It's for fighting within the streets of the European towns. The first rank kneels. Second rank takes a step to the left. The third rank takes a step to the right. Now, we can get three ranks, approximately 30 men, to fire at the same time. As soon as they fire... They split up and move to the rear of the formation and reload. The next three ranks begin again. So the order to begin that formation is kind of a complex thing to do. It's not the thing, the best thing that you would pick to do in the middle of a battle. <clears throat> but they were ordered to do that. But as they were doing that, getting ready, the company that was across the bridge comes dashing back across. And the whole, all of the companies that are online get compressed. Uh, they're all squeezed tight up against each other. Now, as they're doing that, the, the first rank, I mean the first company there, is facing the provincials coming. Now, as they are, <clears throat> the provincials are coming along. As I said, they're coming along in several ranks, but they're coming perpendicular to the men who are there across the North Bridge. They're actually uh, uh, forming up in uh, like a, a naval formation, which is called Crossing the T. That's where you have all of your ships lined up, where they can fire at the uh, oncoming enemy ships, but the oncoming enemy ships cannot fire back at them yet. And that's the formation that they were in, that they were forming up in. As the uh, as Isaac Davis and his men are coming forward, a couple of shots are fired. And the same way at Lexington, the two shots turn into four, that turn into six, until they fire a whole volley, a whole ragged volley, at the advancing uh, men of Davis's company. Now, the majority of the shots went high because in the British Soldier's Manual of Arms, there is no command for aim. There was merely a command for present, which is where you raise the musket up and point it in the general direction of the enemy, and then you fire. And then when you fire, uh, you're setting off a chain of events. Or when you squeeze that trigger, you have a hammer with a rock cranked into it that comes forward and hits the steel plate. It produces a spark, which goes into a pan of loose gunpowder. The pan of loose gunpowder is ignited by the spark and flashes up. As it does, it sends a small stream of fire through a tiny hole into the barrel 
where the rest of the gunpowder is held. And that uh, sets that charge off, and it fires. Well, most of the guys didn't want to have a big explosion uh, on the side of their face that would burn off their wig and burn their face. So they would present, and then they would turn their head to the left. When they turned their head to the left and leaned it back, they also elevated their rifle, their, their muzzles. And this volley, the majority of the rounds, passed harmlessly overhead of Atkins' company. However, they didn't all pass overhead. Isaac Davis received a, a wound to the heart. And beside him, uh, another of his men, Hosmer, received a, uh, a bullet in the head. Both men were killed instantly. They didn't panic. They didn't flee. They continued marching. They continued in formation, marching in formation, until they were set. <clears throat> Even after several more men were hit, they continued marching until they were in formation. Once they were there, in formation, within range, then the command was given. The command was given to fire, men, fire, for God's sake, fire as fast as you can. The command went from the front to the rear of the formation like, uh, like the wind. And they did, and they began to fire. Only their fire was aimed fire. They immediately took out four of the officers and several of the, the men of the front ranks. And as I said, they were being able, they were able the provincials were able to fire all, all up and down the ranks into the body of the regulars who were closed in in that tight uh, lane across the bridge. Also, with the, the officers being hit and down, they had no command and control. They had no orders. Uh, they took the first volley, and they said that they... Uh, a strange kind of ripple, a wave went through them, and they immediately began to run. A formation of British regulars, most feared fighting troops on the face of the earth, had been broken by the country people, by a country people of militia. And why? Why did this happen? Because of aimed fire because of marksmanship. And let me tell you this too. Every time the colonials and what would later become the colonial army and the British regulars met in an equal head-to-head, -head, the colonials won. And why? Because of their marksmanship. Marksmanship matters. The broken units of the colonials, of the uh, British regulars, took off. Major Pitcairn and Colonel Smith heard the, the firing. They grabbed the grenadiers and beat it for the North Bridge. He knew that he had men at Barrett's farm, and he wanted to ensure that the North Bridge was held. Otherwise, those... Uh, I believe with four companies of men at Barrett's Farm, would be cut off. As he was racing to the North Bridge, 
from the town center, and it's a it's a pretty good distance. Uh, if you've been to Concord, you know what I mean. It's a pretty good distance, and it's a bit of a winding uh, road. As he raced to north to the North Bridge, he met the uh, the soldiers coming on, dragging their wounded. And uh, when he got to within a couple of hundred yards of the North Bridge, he stopped. <clears throat> there weren't uh, there weren't a a group of uh, confused uh, mob of folks with pitchforks, etc. there. There were hardened men uh, on the high ground above the bridge behind a wall, several hundred men there, and then another several hundred men across the bridge on the other side. And he stopped his men approximately 200 yards from them. Now, immediately after the men broke and ran, uh, the colonials were in a bit of a in a bit, a bit of a daze. They they weren't sure what they should do. Uh, their training had always been in defensive operations. They didn't have any uh, any skill on offensive operations. Uh, once they had seen the the columns break and run, they they were a bit confused of what to do. The some of the men moved forward. Uh, some of the men moved back. <clears throat> some of the men decided they'd had enough and left. You've got to remember, as I said, these weren't trained soldiers. These were shopkeepers and and farmers and dairymen, and they weren't professional soldiers. When they saw men lying there bloody, it was... It was too much for them. They uh, they wanted no more part, no more of it. One of the men, it was said, was walking away from the battle, uh, was uh, stopped by uh, Colonel Barrett's, uh, his son-in-law's wife, and she told him, well, where are you going? He said, I'm, I'm going home. I'm sick. I'm sick of this. I'm sick of it. And she said, well, you must, you must not go. You must stay. And he said, I'm not. She said, "Well, you must you must leave your your musket then. We will we'll need it." He says, "No, I won't." And she said, "Well, you must." And he says, "No." And she took off after him, and he took off running, and she couldn't keep up with him. There was a lot of confusion. However, there wasn't the confusion that the. Uh, that the park rangers at the Concord Bridge will try and tell you occurred there. As soon as the uh, as soon as the folks, as the uh, British regulars, had broken and ran, Colonel Barrett sent uh, he split his forces up and sent several hundred across the bridge to the high ground behind a stone wall there. And he kept the rest on his side of the bridge and moved them up to the high ground on the training field, which also covered uh, the bridge and the road. Smith stopped his men 200 yards from the north bridge, out of range of the 
the uh, muskets of the men at the North Bridge. Now, the firing was also heard by the four companies at Barrett's Farm, and they took off to make it back. They didn't want to be cut off on the wrong side of the bridge. When they got to the North Bridge, now supposedly the uh, folks at the park there will tell you that there was so much confusion and that the uh, the townspeople were so confused, they were wandering around confused that they didn't notice the four companies of uh, British regulars coming past them. Well, that's not the case. They were un- order- under orders not to fire unless fired upon. Now, they'd been fired upon at the North Bridge, and they returned fire, and they broke those units there and sent them running. But now, as the four companies approached them and, and marched under their guns, they were not fired on. Nobody shot at them, so they didn't shoot back. I'm sure that they, uh, I'm sure they're waiting uh, for a uh, musket ball to crack into them, but it didn't. Those units formed back up with Smith's men. Smith was in a bit of a quandary about what he should do. He wasn't sure what he should do. Should he try to engage these troops, these colonials, and fight a battle with them? Should he go back to Boston? Uh, They said that uh, for almost an hour, he marched back and forth, to and fro. They'd march one way, then march back the other way. March up again and form up, and march the other way. And finally, Smith decided he had done what he'd been asked to do. He had fulfilled his orders, and he formed his men back up to march back to Boston. Now, at Lexington, yes, they had shot a group of the townsfolks, and uh, and they caused a, uh, a, a, a big event there. But that wasn't necessarily the start of a revolution. Uh, they'd shot a bunch of townspeople in Boston uh, just a few years before. And that got worked out. Some folks got on, went to trial, and they worked it all out. The same thing probably would have happened in Lexington. If they had just turned around and marched back to Boston out of Lexington, that probably would have been it for them. Yeah, the people would have been really mad, and there would have been a great hue and cry for justice. But there probably wouldn't have been a revolution on that day. However, that's not what happened. Colonel Smith's men continue on. They marched to Concord. Now, in Concord, they'd shot some more colonials. But guess what? They had taken the worst of it. They'd gotten soundly beaten. They had been forced to retreat and run. They had lost a great many soldiers there in Concord who had been shot, killed, and wounded. If they would immediately have left then and be able to get back to Boston, that probably, yes, they had, uh, they had shot some folks in Lexington. But they had had their hineys handed to them at the North Bridge. 
And that probably would have evened things out. They probably would have been told, listen, you better not try anything like that again, or you'll get the same treatment. And that probably would have been the end of it. But it wasn't. They were going to have to march back to Boston under the guns of thousands of men. And and things were going to be quite a bit different. Now, it's 8.54, so I can tell you that... Uh, that even with the greatest amount of pairing, uh, there's no way I can. Uh, there's no way I can pare down the story into five minutes uh, for the uh, the retreat along Battle Road back to Boston, and uh, and you wouldn't want me to anyway. <clears throat> so what I'll do is. Uh, is we'll give this we'll give this again or we'll give the the last part of it uh, on Thursday night we'll give the retreat from Concord back to uh, Charleston uh, on Thursday night at the same time and then it'll also be archived and then what we'll also do is uh, we're going to get folks, we're going to get you guys, uh, several of the folks to give their versions of the three strikes so that people can go into the archives and listen to the uh, the different versions of the three, three strikes. One of the things that uh, that I absolutely love about being an Appleseed instructor is being is being given the opportunity to tell the story. I'm telling you, I, I love the story. I love to tell the story. I love to hear the story. I've heard the story hundreds of times now. And it always elicits the same the same reaction in me. The the feelings of pride, the, I'm proud of of those men and women who stood together on April 19th, 1775. I'm proud of the the men and women of the program today who tell the story, who continue to honor those men by remembering. <clears throat> so, uh, day after tomorrow, 7 o'clock, we'll give the last, uh, the last strike of the match. And, uh, and then some of the additional stories that we usually tell. Uh, and uh, I thank everybody for listening in tonight. And uh, we will resume this day after tomorrow. Uh, God bless you all.
and we'll see you then. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anytime anywhere with daily bonuses that should brighten your day a little actually a lot so sign up now at chumbacasino.com that's chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary btw void were prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus